please this evening to Luke chapter 15. Luke's Gospel chapter 15. <coughs> Reading from verse 1. <coughs> then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and the nine in the wilderness and goes after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost." I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I'm always intrigued uh, by the way that God is so fascinated by just one individual thing. If you consider that there are probably billions of planets in this universe... And yet out of all of the billions, there's just one that God gives special attention to, planet Earth. There are innumerable, incalculable birds that flies the skies. Yet isn't it interesting that God sees the one sparrow that falls? There must be millions of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And yet the Lord knew where that one was that had the silver coin on its mouth to enable Peter to pay the temple tax. There are seven billion people on the face of the earth. How do you quantify the value to God of just one soul? Of just one single person. How do you estimate the worth of one soul? Why is just one person so infinitely important to Almighty God? The parable that we just began to read, because it's in three parts, speaks of three things that were lost. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. F.W. Boram I think probably there's only two of us in here even knows but F.W. Purim, Jason Dick and myself. Uh, he had a unique way of looking at things. And uh, he talks about the mathematics of that parable. In that, whenever you look at the lost son, that was a 50% loss. When you look at the lost coin, there was 10 coins and one was lost. That's 10% loss. When you look at the sheep, it was a 1% loss. But they were all equally lost. And thank God they were all equally found. And they were all equally rejoiced over. There are many today who are lost. Not just in the eternal sense. Although many are. But lost in various ways. Some have lost their moral compass. Promiscuity illicit affairs, adultery, mistaking all of that lifestyle for love. People trying to find love and acceptance, trying to find that elusive happiness that has escaped them, and they try all of this stuff to find it, and they can't find it, and it doesn't satisfy. And they just go from one thing to the other. Some have lost their Hope, their life seems futureless and pointless and without hope. We talked a few weeks ago about the suicide rate, which is horrendous, even in our wee country, per head of population. Young people especially, just literally losing all hope, any sense that they have any future whatsoever. How tragic is that? Some have lost their moorings, 
They, they are anchorless. And they just drift and they get blown about with every storm. And they have no firm hold in life, no anchor. And their lives become shipwrecked. Some have lost their spiritual bearings. And so they search among the crystals and the tarot cards and the mystics and the gurus and all the new age esoteric nonsense that's out there. And believe me, Hollywood is full of it. Just this past week, we see that one of the famous actresses and her equally famous singer husband has parted company. And she used that very new age term. They had a conscious uncoupling. <laughs> That's a fancy term, isn't it? And to make matters worse, they said, we have never been so much in love. And then the next breath, she says, I can't wait to have some fun and date again. And that's the, the valueless, vacuous lifestyle of many of these celebrities. And it's just nonsense, isn't it? Gobbledygook. No spiritual bearings whatsoever. Many just feel overlooked in life. Disregarded. Spare parts. Surplus to requirements. One man said he felt he was like a second blacksmith in a one-horse town. And yet the Lord sees. And the Lord knows. And the Lord cares. He who sees the sparrow falls is the same one that numbers the hairs on her head. Doesn't just count them, but numbers them. And so he knows the value of every single soul. It's amazing the lengths that God goes to to reach just one person. Think about it. Let me take you to the story in Luke chapter 8. And it's also in Mark chapter 5. The story of the demon-possessed man in the country of the Gadarenes. And, and because you know the story so well, I do not want to labor it. But I want to just draw your attention to something in the story. Verse 26 of Luke 8, it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he had stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. And when, Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? He said, Legion, because, we were, because many demons had entered him. And they begged them that he would not command them to go into the abyss. And now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so he begged him that he would, he would permit them to enter in, and he permitted them. And then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw that what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he had been demon-possessed was healed. And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And note this, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And then in Mark 5, I'm just going to read this little verse at the beginning. 
Verse 21 of Mark 5. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea, and so forth. Sorry, that's just after that, just before that, chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, and so forth. Now, let's just stop there a minute. I've read these portions many, many times over many years. And perhaps you have done the same. And you get the distinct impression. Because just prior to this, Jesus was on the boat with the disciples. A great storm rose up. And I remember he was asleep on a pillow. And he rose up, calmed the storm. And then they got to the other side. And I always had the impression that when they got to the other side, reading those two versions, that when they got to the other side, that immediately... Right at the other side of the lake, there was this man who was dwelling in the tombs who was demon-possessed. And Jesus dealt with that. But actually, if you go to the back of your Bible and you look at a map, you'll find that it's a little bit different. You'll find that it wasn't just at the other side of the lake. You'll find that where he was in the country of the Gadarenes, and probably in Gadara itself, you'll find that's just not at the other side of the lake, at the shore side. That is at least 50 miles, maybe up to 80 miles from the Sea of Galilee. You check that out in the map till you see. And so sometimes when the scriptures are describing these things, they strip it down to the bare bones. So you have to double check. And the point I'm making is this, that whenever Jesus went to that man, he literally went way out of his way. Now, remember, they'd be walking this distance. They would be, that's a long, long way to go to reach that man. And having reached that man and having set that man free, you'd have thought the whole country would have welcomed Jesus, but you see, they didn't. They wanted him to get out of there as quick as he could get out. And they told him to go and to leave. And guess what? That's exactly what he did. And they went all the way back again and got into the boat and left. And my point is, in all of that, is that Jesus, for the sake of that man, inconvenienced himself and all of his disciples and took that long journey just to reach that place where that poor man was and set him free. Yeah. And should it only be one man or two men or three men, not the whole country, he would leave because he didn't want them there. And he would shake the dust of his feet and he'd move on. Now, thank God he told the man who had been delivered to stay there and tell those people great things the Lord had done for him. And he did that. And the news began to spread in that area. But my point is, that one individual, that Jesus saw the need and met the need and went out of his way to do that. It's amazing the trouble that the Lord will go to just to meet the need of one single person. This man was untouchable. He was incurable. Nobody could do anything with this man, only the master. And he went out of his way to do it. Second one I want to show you is this. is the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Again, the stories are familiar, so I don't have to labor it. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded those things which were spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. A revival had broken out in that city. It was tremendous what was happening. But then verse 26, Now that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before, its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, or Ashdod that actually is. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, again, and this is why the map's at the back of your Bible, by the way. If you read that, you think, well, wonderful. Here he was preaching in Samaria, signs and wonders and miracles. The whole city was shaken. The angel comes to him and said, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's out there in Gaza. Go and preach to him. You think, well, what do we do? That's good. Look at your map. It's a hundred miles away. A hundred miles away. And he had to go and get him. He had to go out of his way. He had to leave a mighty revival and go out of his way for one man and travel a hundred miles to find him in the middle of the desert. Because God wanted to do something with that sensitive seeker, with that man who was struggling to understand God's word, but who had a heart to want to know God's word. And God sent his servant all the way to Gaza, a hundred miles just to reach him. And he reached him, and he got him saved, and got him baptized. And then it says... After that, now when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord, now it says in my new King James, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. But if you read it in the old King James, you'll see that it's slightly different. And what it says there, and what it means there, is that he was caught up. He was snatched away. And it's the same word that's used for the word rapture. He was supernaturally taken from that point and he was found 25 miles away at Ashdod. Now don't ask me how God does that. I don't know and I don't care. It's none of my business, but he did it. And from Ashdod, from there, he preached all around 
and into Caesarea. So sometimes you have to look at your map because we just read these cities and we just run our eye over and never think about it for five seconds. And then you begin to think, look at the bother God went to just to reach that one single person. He hadn't just left the town five minutes ago. He's already 100 miles away. A lot of catching up to do. But he caught him and he won him to the Lord. God is infinitely concerned just about the one individual. In Genesis chapter 16, It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she was an Egyptian maidservant whose name was, he had, she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, see now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she, was, that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, Indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. So when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael or God hears. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. And he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. And every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. Or el Rohai. Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Rohai. Which means the well of the one who lives and sees me. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named the son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then if you were to read on, and because of time, if we skip on to chapter 21, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore to him Isaac. So his son of laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. As God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. 
Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son, because Ishmael was his firstborn. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and to the boy and her and to the boy to he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance, about a bowshot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and she wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Despised, thrown out, rejected, and yet God was watching and God was listening. And as soon as the lad cried, God spoke. Even though they were in the wilderness, even though no human eye could see them, but God could see them. Just a lad, just one individual, but God saw him. And God had a great plan for him. Yes, Isaac was the son of promise. Yes, in Isaac all the promises would be fulfilled that God had a plan and he had a promise for Ishmael and for Hagar, his mother. My late brother-in-law, uh, who was a, a, a pastor for many years and an itinerant evangelist, a sister told me one time he was preaching in this church and because he was an itinerant preacher, she heard him preach this message many, many times he was preaching on the message about Nahum. Uh, remember the leper? And, uh, and how he was a great man under the king of Syria. But how he had leprosy. And how that, that little Hebrew maid <coughs> said to her mistress, Oh, that my Lord was in Israel. There's a prophet there who would heal him of this leprosy. And so he had preached that many times. But she says... This particular night, he stopped. He never had done this before. He stopped and he said, you know, I preached this a number of times, but I have never given a name to this little Hebrew mate. Let's give her a name tonight. Let's call her Deborah. Deborah or Deborah is the correct way we say Deborah. He says, let's call her Deborah. And Sandra says, the rest of that night, he deborahed and he deborahed and he deborahed. She thought, what is wrong with him tonight? He's going on and on and much about this deborah. And after the service is over, a young woman came to him and she said, I'm that little Jewish handmaiden deborah. I'm deborah. And she gave her heart to the Lord. And she had come through a lot in her life. And that night God spoke straight into her heart and touched her. God sees the one person. And it's amazing the ways he got to reach just one individual. Should he have to use somebody who's not even thinking along those lines? But just by choosing of all the names he could have chosen that night, that was the one 
And God used that to speak to that young Jewish handmaiden. In Jesus' ministry, we often see him standing in the midst of multitudes. And yet, in the midst of the crowd, he had a wonderful way of noticing just one person. Now, they say Bill Clinton, Acts President, no matter what you think of him and his values or lack of values or whatever, everybody that met him said he has this one art No matter how many people are standing around you, if he's talking to you, you think you're the only person in that room. He looks right into your eyes and he takes those few moments and makes you feel there's nobody else in that room, only you. I said, everybody that has met him says that about him. Now, I'm not endorsing Bill Clinton, but I'm just saying that that's the way he does. And I think the Lord Jesus, not there's any comparison with Bill Clinton, by the way, I think the Lord Jesus had that about him that he saw the individual in the crowd. And of course he knew every heart, didn't he, in the crowd. And he knew every need of everybody in the crowd. And whenever you think about him when he was on the earth, so many times uh, he did this. In Luke 19, do you remember in Luke 19, uh, uh, he was coming, it was in Jericho. And of course, he was the most talked about person in the whole land. I mean, he was a household name. If it was in today's society, he would be the big star. Everybody would want to meet him and to greet him and just to get close to him. You know, you see these people coming off the airports. They're coming through the airport. Everybody's crowding around. They want to meet and greet them. You know, they want to be near the, the celebrity. Well, Jesus had that effect in people. They wanted, they, maybe this is the Messiah. I mean, this is a miracle worker. Who wouldn't want to be near him? And so he's coming through, and there was multitudes of people, huge crowds everywhere he went. And no doubt they were all getting the best advantage point they could to see him. And I could imagine there would be men with their children on their shoulders trying to peek over the crowd. And here's the case that... Little man, short of stature, he was vertically challenged, as we would say. And he thought, how am I going to see him? Ah, wait a minute, there's a sycamore tree. I can climb that sycamore tree. And I'm sure it was in full foliage. And I can get up in there and hide up in there. Nobody had ever seen me up in there. I mean, look at the leaves in that tree. I'll just get up in there and just hide in one of those boughs. And then he'll be coming down this road and I'll just watch him. And I'll get a close-up view of him. And that was the plan. But what he didn't know, that Jesus had a bigger plan. (laughs) And Jesus was walking down and the crowds was all around and they were pushing and shoving, no doubt, and shouting and shouting his name and just wanting his attention, trying to catch his eye. And there's a cast sitting up the tree as happy as Larry, thinking, he's coming near me now. I'll, I'll get a good look down. And suddenly, Jesus stops and he looks up. I'm sure Sakaz's heart nearly jumped out of his chest. <laughs> he looked up. And he said, Sakaz, he knows my name. How does he know my name? <laughs> the tax collector, one of the most hated people in the country. Sakaz, everybody would stop. Because hardly anybody knew Sakaz was up that tree. He was hiding up there. Sakaz, come down quickly. Today I must abide in your house. (laughs) I'm sure he nearly fell down the tree (laughs) with shock. Out of that multitude, just one person, one individual, and he reached up and said, Zacchaeus, come on. I need to be with you today. We've got business today. We need to talk. What a life-changing moment for Zacchaeus. I mean, he just repented immediately, didn't he? I mean, he just wanted to give his money away immediately. Such was a heart change in the man. And this is what God is like. Just one individual. The little woman with the issue of blood. If I can just touch his garment. I know he's a rabbi. And I know that 
if he finds this out, it'll make him ceremonially unclean if I touch him. I have an issue of blood. I shouldn't be touching holy men or rabbis because they'll not be able to go to the temple for seven days if I touch him. But he'll never know. He'll never know. If I can just get in among that crowd and just for one second just touch him, I'll be made whole. And sure enough, she came along. And again, there's a multitude of people all swarming around Jesus. And she tried and tried. And eventually, she just got to where she just touched his garment. And he stopped. And he says, who touched my clothes? If you read it in the different Gospels, first of all, he says, who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, oh, you're asking who touched your clothes? I mean, everybody's touching you. Look. Everybody's touching you. But he says, I felt power go out of me. Somebody really touched me. I felt my power go out of me. And of course, that little woman, he turned around, and there she was, trembling, afraid. She'd done an awful thing. She touched a rabbi. <sighs> She's in trouble now. But she wasn't in trouble. And Jesus commended her. And she was instantly and immediately healed of that issue of blood. Just that one little woman. And Jesus knew that somebody had touched him. What a connection she made. I love the story of the blind man, the lame man, beg your pardon, at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And again, it says there was multitudes. This was a popular place. There was a belief that an angel would come down at a certain time and stir the waters, and if you jumped in, you would get healed. Whether that was true or not, that's what they believed. And here's a man who came here every day. His friends would bring him every day for a long time. Years and years and years. And Jesus passing by he said do you want to be healed he picked him out I mean there must have been dozens and dozens of them around that pool that would be swarming with people and he picked one out do you want to be healed well, I, I have no man I mean I, I would love to but I mean, every time they're stirring the waters I, I have nobody to get me in do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Just that one individual. And Jesus healed him. And he got up. And he walked. Isn't it marvelous the way that the Lord just sees the one person? You know, sometimes we think he's a million miles away. He never sees us. He doesn't see our need. He doesn't know what we're going through. That's a life in the pit of hell. He does. He sees every moment of every day of our lives. I haven't time to talk about the widow of Nain or the woman that was bent over for 18 years or the many incidences in the New Testament and the Gospels alone where you see that Jesus just touched one individual. You ought to read the, you ought to read the, if you want to use the word, the interviews that Jesus had with individual people in the New Testament. There's loads of them. I think there's over 40. Where he talked just individually to people. It's an interesting read if you do that. He just didn't, it wasn't one size fits all with Jesus. You know, individually he dealt with people as individuals. And he blessed them. And he challenged them. And he met their need. You see, in God's kingdom, one person is just so important. What kind of Bible would we have tonight if we didn't know about Adam and Eve? Or we didn't know about Abraham or Moses? If they were never mentioned. What kind of Bible we'd have if we didn't know about Elisha or Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or, or the great prophets? If we didn't know about Peter, about Paul, about John? How different would the Advent story be if we didn't know about Mary and Joseph, about Zacharias and Elizabeth, about Simeon, about Anna the prophetess? What would it be like? But all individual stories, some of them are just wee cameos, like Phoebe we mentioned this morning in Romans 16, 1 and 2. 
Sometimes just a little cameo story. Sometimes it's a long story. You get the, the whole background. But what kind of Bible it would be if we didn't have that? How we love to hear about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where Jesus would love to go and sit in their home and have a meal and have a conversation and could be completely relaxed in that family home. Isn't it lovely? And then you read the great roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where all those individual names are mentioned. And then, again, Romans 16, where we were this morning. You know, there's about three dozen names that Paul mentions specifically. About 36 people that he took the bother to write down their names. And sometimes that's all we know about them, just their name. But they're all co-laborers with him in the gospel. But they're all important to God. Every single one of them. And God's work continued. And you think of the great exploits of the great reformers like Luther and Calvin. Or the great Bible translators like William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale and John Whitcliffe. And you think of what they went through and what they had to do and the suffering. And some of them actually died for their belief about getting the word of God into everybody's hands. Mighty evangelists like the Whitfields and the Wesleys that saved Great Britain from what France was getting, a revolution. Instead, we got a revival. Wonderful. Great preachers like Spurgeon and F.B. Meyer and Dr. Parker from London, all these mighty men of God. You know, there was a time when London was just hiving with great churches and great preachers. Wonderful missionaries like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Gladys Ilworth and C.T. Studd and David Livingstone and Amy Carmichael and Mary Slezer and Eric Little and Jim Elliott and Mary is more of them. Social reformers like Dr. Bernardo and William and Catherine Booth of the Salvation Army. The one who founded the Red Cross. Jean-Henri Dunant. These are people that God had touched. These are just one individual that made such a difference to this world because God had found them and God had touched them. Great scientists like William Faraday and Lord Kelvin and Sir James Simpson who founded chloroform and on and on you could go. All individual people like you and like me tonight. Never underestimate the power of one individual that can make a difference in a home, in a community, in a city, in a nation, in a continent, in the world. Can make a difference. And so if you feel like a spare part tonight, surplus to requirements, it's just we, me. Who am I? What am I? What do I count for? God sees you and you count with God. In fact, you count so much with God that he sent his son to die for you. That's how much you count with him. That's how much he cares for you. So we really have no right to say that we don't count with God. We do. Absolutely. And he wants to use us for his glory. That may be simply just to raise your children up to know him and to love him and maybe your children will serve him. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? You know, you may never grace a platform. You may never stand out from the crowd. But you, this is Mother's Day, but you as a mother, you may be the one who raises up godly children that will reach around the world and do something for the kingdom. You may be the one that will do that. So you count with God, don't you? You know, I was thinking on Friday night here, or, or, or the, the young people on Friday night that meets. What, what age group is that, Gary? From? B6. From six upwards. B6, yeah. B6, oh, B6 upwards. And then there was, a, there was a bunch of them. And they were doing it on Friday night. That thrilled me when I saw it on Facebook. You know, they had them doing it. That's a new generation, the Caitlins and so forth, uh, and the different ones, and, and we sash on them. They're, they were actually doing it. Isn't that wonderful? Just kids, but the hand of God's on them. The blessing of God's in their life. Oh, I mean, what can God not do with them when they're 18? 
or they're 20. Who knows where God will do them or where he'll send them? Because he sees every one of us. And he's got his hand at every single one of us. And there's not a one of us that doesn't count for his kingdom tonight. Amen? Let's pray. Somebody said that in Roman numerals there's no zero. God doesn't make any zeros. Every one of us counts. Every one of us is important. Every one of us has got a place in his church, in his kingdom. Lord, we thank you that tonight you see us exactly where we are. And you know exactly who we are. And we thank you that your eye is upon us. That your ear is open to our cry. Lord, would you lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit? Would you lead us into all truth? Would you cause our lives to count for the kingdom? May we be effectual in all that we do for Christ's sake. So thank you, Lord, for your care, your tender care for us. Thank you, Lord, for your unfeeling eye that is upon us. Lord, even when we sleep in our bed at night, you watch over us. We thank you that the hairs on our head are numbered. And so we bless you for your undivided attention to each of us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the gift of life that you have imparted to us, freely given because of your son's work on the cross. We bless you for that tonight. So Lord, help us as we go into this new working week. Help us, Lord, to be conscious that you are watching over us. And Lord, that your plans for us are good. And Lord, that you're working our lives out after the counsel of your own will. And your will for us is perfect, Lord. And we thank you for that. So help us to trust you fully as we go forward this week in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>